Question 74 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 74, on all the seven days in common in three articles we next consider all the seven days in common and there are three points of inquiry one as to the sufficiency of these days two whether they are all one day or more than one three as to certain modes of speaking which scripture uses in narrating the works of the six days first article whether these days are sufficiently enumerated Objection 1. It would seem that these days are not sufficiently enumerated, for the work of creation is no less distinct from the works of distinction and adornment than these two works are from one another. But separate days are assigned to distinction and to adornment, and therefore separate days should be assigned to creation. Objection 2. Further, air and fire are nobler elements than earth and water, but one day is assigned to the distinction of water, and another to the distinction of the land. Therefore, other days ought to be devoted to the distinction of fire and air. Objection 3. Further, fish differ from birds, as much as birds differ from the beasts of the earth, whereas man differs more from other animals than all animals whatsoever differ from each other. But one day is devoted to the production of fishes, and another to that of the beast of the earth. Another day, then, ought to be assigned to the production of birds, and another to that of men. Objection 4. Further, it would seem, on the other hand, that some of these days are superfluous. Light, for instance, stands to the luminaries in the relation of accident to subject. But the subject is produced at the same time as the accident proper to it. The light and the luminaries, therefore, ought not to have been produced on different days. Objection 5. Further, these days are devoted to the first instituting of the world. But as on the seventh day nothing was instituted, that day ought not to be enumerated with the others. I answer that, the reason of the distinction of these days is made clear by what has been said above, question 70, article 1, namely, that the parts of the world had first to be distinguished, and then each part adorned and filled, as it were, by the beings that inhabit it. Now the parts into which the corporeal creation is divided are three, according to some holy writers, these parts being the heaven, or highest part, the water, or middle part, and the earth, or the lowest part. Thus the Pythagoreans teach that perfection consists in three things, the beginning, the middle, and the end. The first part, then, is distinguished on the first day, and adorned on the fourth. The middle part distinguished on the middle day, and adorned on the fifth. And the third part distinguished on the third day, and adorned on the sixth. But Augustine, while agreeing with the above writers as to the last three days, differs as to the first three. For, according to him, spiritual creatures are formed on the first day, and corporeal on the two others, 
the higher bodies being formed on the first of these two days, and the lower on the second. Thus, then, the perfection of the divine works corresponds to the perfection of the number six, which is the sum of its aliquot parts, one, two, three, since one day is assigned to the forming of spiritual creatures, two to that of corporeal creatures, and three to the work of adornment. Reply to Objection 1. According to Augustine, the work of creation belongs to the production of formless matter, and of the formless spiritual nature, both of which are outside of time, as he himself says, in the Confessions 12.12. Thus, then, the creation of either is set down before there was any day. But it may also be said, following other holy writers, that the works of distinction and adornment imply certain changes in the creature which are measurable by time, whereas the work of creation lies only in the divine act producing the substance of beings instantaneously. For this reason, therefore, every work of distinction and adornment is said to take place in a day, but creation in the beginning, which denotes something indivisible. Reply to Objection 2. Fire and air, as not distinctly known by the unlettered, are not expressly named by Moses among the parts of the world, but reckoned with the intermediate part, or water, specially as regards the lowest part of the air, or with the heaven, to which the higher region of air approaches, as Augustine says in The Literal Meaning of Genesis 2.13. Reply to Objection 3. The production of animals is recorded with reference to their adorning the various parts of the world, and therefore the days of their production are separated or united according as the animals adorn the same parts of the world or different parts. Reply to Objection 4. The nature of light as existing in a subject was made on the first day, and the making of the luminaries on the fourth day does not mean that their substance was produced anew, but that they then received a form that they had not before, as said above, in question 70, article 1, answer 2. Reply to Objection 5. According to Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 4.15, after all that has been recorded that is assigned to the six days, something distinct is attributed to the seventh, namely, that on it God rested in himself from his works. And for this reason it was right that the seventh day should be mentioned after the six. It may also be said, with the other writers, that the world entered on the seventh day upon a new state, in that nothing new was to be added to it, and that therefore the seventh day is mentioned after the sixth, from its being devoted to cessation from work. Second article. Whether all these days are one day. Objection 1. It would seem that all these days are one day, for it is written in Genesis chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and every plant of the field, before it sprung up in the earth. Therefore the day in which God made the heaven and the earth, and every plant on the field, is one and the same day. But he made the heaven and the earth on the first day, or rather before there was any day, but the plant of the field he made on the third day. Therefore the first and third days are but one day, and for a like reason all the rest. Objection to. 
Further, it is said in Ecclesiasticus chapter 18, verse 1, He that liveth forever created all things together. But this would not be the case if the days of these works were more than one. Therefore, they are not many, but one only. Objection 3. Further, on the seventh day God ceased from all new works. If then the seventh day is distinct from the other days, it follows that he did not make that day, which is not admissible. Objection 4. Further, the entire work ascribed to one day God perfected in an instant, for with each work are the words, God said, and it was done. If then he had kept back his next work to another day, it would follow that for the remainder of a day he would have ceased from working and left it vacant, which would be superfluous. The day, therefore, of the preceding work is one with the day of the work that follows. On the contrary, it is written in Genesis 1, The evening and the morning were the second day, the third day, and so on. But where there is a second and third, there are more than one. There was not, therefore, only one day. I answer that, on this question, Augustine differs from other expositors. His opinion is that all the days that are called seven are one day represented in a sevenfold aspect, in the literal meaning of Genesis 4.22, the city of God 11.9, and Ad Orosium 26. While others consider there were seven distinct days, not one only. Now, these two opinions, taken as explaining the literal text of Genesis, are certainly widely different. For Augustine understands by the word day, the knowledge in the mind of the angels, and hence, according to him, the first day denotes their knowledge of the first of the divine works, the second day their knowledge of the second work, and similarly with the rest. Thus, then, each work is said to have been wrought in some one of these days, inasmuch as God wrought nothing in the universe without impressing the knowledge thereof on the angelic mind, which can know many things at the same time, especially in the Word, in whom all angelic knowledge is perfected and terminated. So the distinction of days denotes the natural order of the things known, and not a succession in the knowledge acquired or in the things produced. Moreover, angelic knowledge is appropriately called day, since light, the cause of day, is to be found in spiritual things, as Augustine observes in the literal meaning of Genesis 4.28. In the opinion of the others, however, the day signify a succession both in time and in the things produced. If, however, these two explanations are looked at as referring to the mode of production, they will be found not greatly to differ, if the diversity of opinion existing on two points, as already shown, in question 67, article 1, and question 69, article 1, between Augustine and other writers is taken into account. First, because Augustine takes the earth and the water as first created to signify matter totally without form, but the making of the firmament, the gathering of the waters, and the appearing of dry land, to denote the impression of forms upon corporeal matter. But other holy writers take the earth and the water, as first created, to signify the elements of the universe themselves existing under the proper forms, and the works that follow to mean some sort of distinction in bodies previously existing, as also has been shown, in questions 67, articles 1 and 4, 
Question 69, Article 1. Secondly, some writers hold that plants and animals were produced actually in the work of the six days. Augustine, that they were produced potentially. Now, the opinion of Augustine, that the works of the six days were simultaneous, is consistent with either view of the mode of production. For the other writers agree with him that in the first production of things, matter existed under the substantial form of the elements, and agree with him also that in the first instituting of the world, animals and plants did not exist actually. There remains, however, a difference as to four points, since, according to the latter, there was a time, after the production of creatures, in which light did not exist, the firmament had not been formed, and the earth was still covered by the waters, nor had the heavenly bodies been formed, which is the fourth difference which are not consistent with Augustine's explanation. In order, therefore, to be impartial, we must meet the arguments of either side. Reply to Objection 1 On the day in which God created the heaven and the earth, he created also every plant of the field, not indeed actually, but before it sprung up in the earth, that is, potentially. And this work Augustine ascribes to the third day, but other writers to the first instituting of the world. Reply to Objection 2. God created all things together, so far as regards their substance, in some measure formless. But he did not create all things together, so far as regards that formation of things which lies in distinction and adornment. Hence the word creation is significant. Reply to Objection 3. On the seventh day, God ceased from making new things, but not from providing for their increase, and to this latter work it belongs that the first day is succeeded by other days. Reply to Objection 4. All things were not distinguished and adorned together, not from a want of power on God's part, as requiring time in which to work, but that due order might be observed in the instituting of the world. Hence it was fitting that different days should be assigned to the different states of the world, as each succeeding work added to the world a fresh state of perfection. Reply to Objection 5. According to Augustine, the order of days refers to the natural order of the works attributed to the days. Third article. Whether Scripture uses suitable words to express the work of the six days. Objection 1. It would seem the Scripture does not use suitable words to express the works of the six days. For as light, the firmament, and other similar works were made by the word of God, so were the heaven and the earth, for all things were made by him, in John chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore, in the creation of heaven and earth, as in the other works, mention should have been made of the word of God. Objection 2. Further, the water was created by God, yet its creation is not mentioned. Therefore, the creation of the world is not sufficiently described. Objection 3. Further, it is said, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all the things that he had made, and they were very good. It ought then to have been said of each work, God saw that it was good. The omission, therefore, of these words in the work of creation and in that of the second day is not fitting. Objection 4. Further, the Spirit of God is God himself, but it does not befit God to move and occupy place. Therefore the words, 
the Spirit of God moved over the waters, are unbecoming. Objection 5. Further, what is already made is not made over again. Therefore, to the words, God said, let the firmament be made, and it was so, it is superfluous to add, God made the firmament. And the like is to be said of other works. Objection 5. Further, evening and morning do not sufficiently divide the day, since the day has many parts. Therefore, the words, the evening and morning were the second day or the third day, are not suitable. Objection 7. Further, first, not one, corresponds to second and third. It should therefore have been said, the evening and the morning were the first day, rather than one day. Reply to Objection 1. According to Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 1.4, the person of the sun is mentioned both in the first creation of the world and in its distinction and adornment, but differently in either place. For distinction and adornment belong to the work by which the world receives its form. But as the giving form to a work of art is by means of the form of the art in the mind of the artist, which may be called his intelligible word, so the given form to every creature is by the word of God. And for this reason, in the works of distinction and adornment, the word is mentioned. But in creation, the sun is mentioned as the beginning, by the words, In the beginning God created, since by creation is understood the production of formless matter. But according to those who hold that the elements were created from the first under their proper forms, another explanation must be given. And therefore Basil says, in the first and second homily on the Exameron, that the words, God said, signify a divine command. Such a command, however, could not have been given before creatures had been produced that could obey it. Reply to Objection 2. According to Augustine, in the City of God 933, by the heaven is understood the formless spiritual nature, and by the earth the formless matter of all corporeal things, and thus no creature is omitted. But, according to Basil, in the first homily in the Exameron, the heaven and the earth, as the two extremes, are alone mentioned, the intervening things being left to be understood, since all these move heavenwards, if light, or earthwards, if heavy. And others say that under the word earth, scripture is accustomed to include all the four elements, as in the Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8, after the words, Praise the Lord from the earth, is added, Fire, hail, snow, and ice. Reply to Objection 3 In the account of the creation, there is found something to correspond to the words, God saw that it was good, used in the work of distinction and adornment. And this appears from the consideration that the Holy Spirit is love. Now, there are two things, says Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 1.8, which came from God's love of his creatures, their existence and their permanence. That they might then exist and exist permanently, the Spirit of God, it is said, moved over the waters, that is to say, over that formless matter, signified by water, even as the love of the artist moves over the materials of his art, so that out of them he may form his work. And the words, God saw that it was good, signify that the things that he had made were to endure, since they express a certain satisfaction taken by God in his works, as of an artist in his art, not as though he knew the creature otherwise, 
or that the creature was pleasing to him otherwise than before he made it. Thus, in either work of creation and of formation, the trinity of persons is implied. In creation, the person of the Father is indicated by God the Creator, the person of the Son by the beginning, in which he created, and the person of the Holy Ghost by the Spirit that moved over the waters. But in the formation, the person of the Father is indicated by God that speaks, and the person of the Son by the word in which he speaks, and the person of the Holy Spirit by the satisfaction with which God saw that what was made was good. And if the words, God saw that it was good, are not said of the work of the second day, this is because the work of distinguishing the waters was only begun on that day, but perfected on the third. Hence these words that are said of the third day refer also to the second. Or it may be that Scripture does not use these words of approval of the second day's work, because this is concerned with the distinction of things not evident to the senses of mankind. Or, again, because by the firmament is simply understood the cloudy region of the air, which is not one of the permanent parts of the universe, nor of the principal divisions of the world. The above three reasons are given by Rabbi Moses, in the Guide for the Perplexed, too and to these may be added a mystical one derived from numbers and assigned by some writers according to whom the work of the second day is not marked with approval because the second number is an imperfect number as receding from the perfection of unity reply to objection four rabbi moses in the guide for the perplexed too understands by the spirit of the lord the air or the wind as plato also did and says that it is so called according to the custom of Scripture, in which these things are throughout attributed to God. But according to the holy writers, the Spirit of the Lord signifies the Holy Ghost, who is said to move over the water, that is to say, over what Augustine holds to mean formless matter, lest it should be supposed that God loved of necessity the works he was to produce, as though he stood in need of them. For love of that kind is subject to, not superior to, the object of love. Moreover, it is fittingly implied that the Spirit moved over that which was incomplete and unfinished, since that movement is not one of place, but of preeminent power, as Augustine says in the literal meaning of Genesis 1.7. It is the opinion, however, of Basil, in the second homily in the Examiron, that the spirit moved over the element of water, fostering and quickening its nature, and impressing vital power, as the hen broods over her chickens. For water has especially a life-giving power, since many animals are generated in water, and the seed of all animals is liquid. Also, the life of the soul is given by the water of baptism, according to John chapter 3, verse 5. Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Reply to Objection 5. According to Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 1.8, these three phrases denote the threefold being of creatures. First, their being in the world, denoted by the command, Let be made. Secondly, their being in the angelic mind, signified by the words, It was done. Thirdly, their being in their proper nature, by the words, he made. And because the formation of the angels is recorded on the first day, it was not necessary there to add 
he made. It may also be said, following other writers, that the words he said and let be made denote God's command, and the words it was done the fulfillment of that command. But as it was necessary, for the sake of those especially who have asserted that all visible things were made by the angels, to mention how things were made, it is added, in order to remove that error, that God himself made them. Hence, in each work, after the words, it was done, some act of God is expressed by some such words as, he made, or he divided, or he called. Reply to Objection 6. According to Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 4, 22 and 30, by the evening and the morning are understood the evening and the morning knowledge of the angels, which has been explained in question 58, articles 6 and 7. But, according to Basil, in the second homily on the Exameron, the entire period takes its name, as is customary, from its more important part, the day. An instance of this is found in the words of Jacob, the days of my pilgrimage, where night is not mentioned at all. But the evening and the morning are mentioned as being the ends of the day, since day begins with morning and ends with evening, or because evening denotes the beginning of night, and morning the beginning of day. It seems fitting, also, that where the first distinction of creatures is described, divisions of time should be denoted only by what marks their beginning. And the reason for mentioning the evening first is that as the evening ends the day, which begins with the light, the termination of the light at evening precedes the termination of the darkness, which ends with the morning. But Chrysostom's explanation is that thereby it is intended to show that the natural day does not end with the evening, but with the morning, in the fifth homily on Genesis. Reply to Objection 7. The words one day are used when day is first instituted, to denote that one day is made up of twenty-four hours. Hence, by mentioning one, the measure of a natural day is fixed. Another reason may be to signify that a day is completed by the return of the sun to the point from which it commenced its course. And yet another, because at the completion of a week of seven days, the first day returns which is one with the eighth day. The three reasons assigned above are those given by Basil in the second homily on the Exameron. End of question 74. End of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 75 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 75. Of man who is composed of a spiritual and a corporeal substance, and in the first place, concerning what belongs to the essence of the soul, in seven articles. Having treated of the spiritual and of the corporeal creature, 
we now proceed to treat of man who is composed of a spiritual and corporeal substance we shall treat first of the nature of man and secondly of his origin now the theologian considers the nature of man in relation to the soul but not in relation to the body except in so far as the body has relation to the soul hence the first object of our consideration will be the soul and since dionysius in parentheses ang hieroglyphics eleven says that three things are to be found in spiritual substances essence power and operation we shall treat first of what belongs to the essence of the soul secondly of what belongs to its power thirdly of what belongs to its operation concerning the first two points have to be considered the first is the nature of the soul considered in itself the second is the union of the soul with the body under the first head there are seven points of inquiry one whether the soul is a body two whether the human soul is a subsistence three whether the souls of brute animals are subsistent four whether the soul is man or is man composed of soul and body five whether the soul is composed of matter and form six whether the soul is incorruptible seven whether the soul is of the same species as an angel part one question seventy five article one whether the soul is a body objection one it would seem that the soul is a body for the soul is the moving principle of the body nor does it move unless moved first because seemingly nothing can move unless it is itself moved since nothing gives what it has not for instance what is not hot does not give heat secondly because if there be anything that moves and is not moved it must be the cause of eternal unchanging movement as we find proved physics eight six and this does not appear to be the case in the movement of an animal which is caused by the soul therefore the soul is a mover moved but every mover moved is a body therefore the soul is a body objection two further all knowledge is caused by means of a likeness but there can be no likeness of a body to an incorporeal thing if therefore the soul were not a body it could not have knowledge of corporeal things objection three further between the mover and the moved there must be contact but contact is only between bodies since therefore the soul moves the body it seems that the soul must be a body on the contrary augustine says in parentheses on trinity six six 
that the soul is simple in comparison with the body, inasmuch as it does not occupy space by its bulk. I answer that, to seek the nature of the soul, we must premise that the soul is defined as the first principle of life of those things which live. For we call living things animate, that is, having a soul, and those things which have no life inanimate. Now life is shown principally by two actions, knowledge and movement. The philosophers of old, not being able to rise above their imagination, supposed that the principle of these actions was something corporeal, for they asserted that only bodies were real things, and that what is not corporeal is nothing. Hence they maintained that the soul is something corporeal. This opinion can be proved to be false in many ways, but we shall make use of only one proof, based on universal and certain principles, which shows clearly that the soul is not a body. It is manifest that not every principle of vital action is a soul, for then the eye would be a soul, as it is a principle of vision, and the same might be applied to the other instruments of the soul. But it is the first principle of life, which we call the soul. Now, though a body may be a principle of life, as the heart is a principle of life in an animal, yet nothing corporeal can be the first principle of life. For it is clear that to be a principle of life, or to be a living thing, does not belong to a body as such, since, if that were the case, every body would be a living thing, or a principle of life. Therefore, a body is competent to be a living thing, or even a principle of life as such, a body. Now that it is actually such a body, it owes to some principle which is called its act. Therefore the soul, which is the first principle of life, is not a body, but an act of the body. Thus heat, which is the principle of calefaction, is not a body, but an act of a body. Reply to Objection 1. As everything which is in motion must be moved by something else, a process which cannot be prolonged indefinitely, we must allow that not every mover is moved. For since to be moved is to pass from potentiality to actuality, the mover gives what it has to the thing moved, inasmuch as it causes it to be in act. But, as is shown in Physics 8.6, there is a mover which is altogether immovable, and not moved either essentially or accidentally, and such a mover can cause an invariable movement. There is, however, another kind of mover, which, though not moved essentially, is moved accidentally, and for this reason it does not cause an invariable movement, such a mover is the soul. There is, again, another mover, which is moved essentially, namely the body. And because the philosophers of old believed that nothing existed but bodies, they maintained that every mover is moved, and that the soul is moved directly, 
and is a body. Reply to Objection 2. The likeness of a thing known is not of necessity actually in the nature of the knower, but given a thing which knows potentially, and afterwards knows actually, the likeness of the thing known must be in the nature of the knower, not actually, but only potentially. Thus color is not actually in the pupil of the eye, but only potentially. Hence it is necessary not that the likeness of corporeal things should be actually in the nature of the soul, but that there be a potentiality in the soul for such a likeness. But the ancient philosophers omitted to distinguish between actuality and potentiality, and so they held that the soul must be a body in order to have knowledge of a body, and that it must be composed of the principles of which all bodies are formed in order to know all bodies. Reply to Objection 3. There are two kinds of contact, of quantity and of power. By the former, a body can be touched only by a body. By the latter, a body can be touched by an incorporeal thing, which moves that body. Part 1. Question 75. Article 2 whether the human soul is something subsistent. Objection 1. It would seem that the human soul is not something subsistent, for that which subsists is said to be this particular thing. Now, this particular thing is said not of the soul, but of that which is composed of soul and body. Therefore, the soul is not something subsistent. Objection 2. Further, everything subsistent operates. But the soul does not operate, for as the philosopher says, in parentheses, on the soul, 1-4, to say that the soul feels or understands is like saying that the soul weaves or builds. Therefore, the soul is not subsistent. Objection 3. Further, if the soul were subsistent, it would have some operation apart from the body. But it has no operation apart from the body, not even that of understanding, for the act of understanding does not take place without a phantasm, which cannot exist apart from the body. Therefore, the human soul is not something subsistent. On the contrary, Augustine says, in parentheses, on the Trinity, 10, 7, who understands that the nature of the soul is that of a substance and not that of a body, will see that those who maintain the corporeal nature of the soul are led astray through associating with the soul those things without which they are unable to think of any nature, that is, imaginary pictures of corporeal things. Therefore, the nature of the human intellect is not only incorporeal, but it is also a substance, that is, something subsistent. I answer that it must necessarily be allowed that the principle of intellectual operation which we call the soul 
is a principle both incorporeal and subsistent. For it is clear that by means of the intellect man can have knowledge of all corporeal things. Now, whatever knows certain things cannot have any of them in its own nature, because that which is in it naturally would impede the knowledge of anything else. Thus we observe that a sick man's tongue being vitiated by a feverish and bitter humor is insensible to anything sweet, and everything seems bitter to it. Therefore, if the intellectual principle contained the nature of a body, it would be unable to know all bodies. Now every body has its own determinate nature. Therefore, it is impossible for the intellectual principle to be a body. It is likewise impossible for it to understand, by means of a bodily organ, since the determinate nature of that organ would impede knowledge of all bodies, as when a certain determinate color is not only in the pupil of the eye, but also in a glass vase. The liquid in the vase seems to be of that same color. Therefore, the intellectual principle which we call the mind, or the intellect, has an operation, per se, apart from the body. Now only that which subsists can have an operation, per se. For nothing can operate but what is actual. For which reason we do not say that heat imparts heat, but that what is hot gives heat. We must conclude, therefore, that the human soul, which is called the intellect or the mind, is something incorporeal, and subsistent. Reply to Objection 1. This particular thing can be taken in two senses. Firstly, for anything subsistent. Secondly, for that which subsists and is complete in a specific nature. The former sense excludes the inherence of an accident or of a material form. The latter excludes also the imperfection of the part, so that a hand can be called this particular thing in the first sense, but not in the second. Therefore, as the human soul is a part of human nature, it can indeed be called this particular thing in the first sense as being something subsistent, but not in the second, for in this sense what is composed of body and soul is said to be this particular thing. Reply to Objection 2 Aristotle wrote those words as expressing not his own opinion, but the opinion of those who said that to understand is to be moved, as is clear from the context. Or we may reply that to operate per se belongs to what exists per se. But for a thing to exist per se, it suffices sometimes that it be not inherent as an accident or a material form, even though it be part of something. Nevertheless, that is rightly said to subsist per se, which is neither inherent in the above sense nor part of anything else. In this sense, the eye or the hand cannot be said to subsist per se, nor can it for that reason be said to operate, per se. Hence, the operation of the parts is through each part attributed to the whole. 
For we say that man sees with the eye, and feels with the hand, and not in the same sense as when we say that what is hot gives heat by its heat, for heat, strictly speaking, does not give heat. We may therefore say that the soul understands, as the eye sees, but it is more correct to say that man understands through the soul. Reply to Objection 3 The body is necessary for the action of the intellect, not as its origin of action, but on the part of the object, for the phantasm is to the intellect what color is to the sight. Neither does such a dependence on the body prove the intellect to be non-subsistent. Otherwise it would follow that an animal is non-subsistent, since it requires external objects of the senses in order to perform its act of perception. Part 1. Question 75. Article 3. Whether the souls of brute animals are subsistent? Objection 1. It would seem that the souls of brute animals are subsistent, for man is of the same genus as other animals, and as we have just shown in Article 2, the soul of man is subsistent. Therefore, the souls of other animals are subsistent. Objection 2. Further, the relation of the sensitive faculty to sensible objects is like the relation of the intellectual faculty to intelligible objects. But the intellect, apart from the body, apprehends intelligible objects. Therefore, the sensitive faculty, apart from the body, perceives sensible objects. Therefore, since the souls of brute animals are sensitive, it follows that they are subsistent, just as the human intellectual soul is subsistent. Objection 3. Further, the soul of brute animals moves the body, but the body is not a mover, but is moved. Therefore, the soul of brute animals has an operation apart from the body. On the contrary, is what is written in the book of On the Dogmas of the Church. Man alone we believe to have a subsistent soul, whereas the souls of animals are not subsistent. I answer that the ancient philosophers made no distinction between sense and intellect, and referred both to a corporeal principle, as has been said, parentheses, article 1. Plato, however, drew a distinction between intellect and sense, yet he referred both to an incorporeal principle, maintaining that sensing, just as understanding, belongs to the soul as such. From this it follows that even the souls of brute animals are subsistent. But Aristotle held that of the operations of the soul, understanding alone is performed without a corporeal organ. On the other hand, sensation and the consequent operations of the sensitive soul are evidently accompanied with the change in the body. Thus, in the act of vision, the pupil of the eye is affected by a reflection of color, 
and so with the other senses. Hence, it is clear that the sensitive soul has no per se operation of its own, and that every operation of the sensitive soul belongs to the composite. Wherefore, we conclude that as the souls of brute animals have no per se operations, they are not subsistent. For the operation of anything follows the mode of its being. Reply to Objection 1. Although man is of the same genus as other animals, he is of a different species. Specific difference is derived from the difference of form, nor does every difference of form necessarily imply a diversity of genus. Reply to Objection 2. The relation of the sensitive faculty to the sensible object is in one way the same as that of the intellectual faculty to the intelligible object, in so far as each is in potentiality to its object. But in another way their relations differ, inasmuch as the impression of the object on the sense is accompanied with change in the body, so that excessive strength of the sensible corrupts sense a thing that never occurs in the case of the intellect. For an intellect that understands the highest of intelligible objects is more able afterwards to understand those that are lower. If, however, in the process of intellectual operation the body is weary, this result is accidental, inasmuch as the intellect requires the operation of the sensitive powers in the production of the phantasms. Reply to Objection 3. Motive power is of two kinds. One, the appetitive power, commands motion. The operation of this power in the sensitive soul is not apart from the body, for anger, joy, and passions of a like nature are accompanied by a change in the body. The other motive power is that which executes motion in adapting the members for obeying the appetite, and the act of this power does not consist in moving, but in being moved. Whence it is clear that to move is not an act of the sensitive soul without the body. Part 1, Question 75, Article 4 Whether the soul is man? Objection 1 it would seem that the soul is man. For it is written, parentheses, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outward man is corrupted, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. But that which is within man is the soul. Therefore, the soul is the inward man. Objection 2. Further, the human soul is a substance but it is not a universal substance. Therefore, it is a particular substance. Therefore, it is a hypostasis, or a person, and it can only be a human person. Therefore, the soul is man, for a human person is a man. On the contrary, Augustine in The City of God, 19.3, commends Varro as holding that man is not a mere soul, nor a mere body, but both soul and body. I answer that the assertion, the soul is man, can be taken in two senses. First, that man is a soul, 
though this particular man, Socrates, for instance, is not a soul, but composed of soul and body. I say this for as much as some held that the form alone belongs to the species, while matter is part of the individual and not the species. This cannot be true, for to the nature of the species belongs what the definition signifies, and in natural things the definition does not signify the form only, but the form and the matter. Hence, in natural things the matter is part of the species, not, indeed, signate matter, which is the principle of individuality, but the common matter. For as it belongs to the notion of this particular man to be composed of this soul, of this flesh, and of these bones, so it belongs to the notion of man to be composed of soul, flesh, and bones. For whatever belongs in common to the substance of all the individuals contained under a given species must belong to the substance of the species. It may also be understood in this sense that this soul is the man, and this could be held if it were supposed that the operation of the sensitive soul were proper to it, apart from the body, because in that case all the operations which are attributed to man would belong to the soul only, and whatever performs the operations proper to a thing is that thing, wherefore that which performs the operation of a man is man. But it has been shown above, in Article 3, that sensation is not the operation of the soul only. Since then, sensation is an operation of man but not proper to him. It is clear that man is not a soul only, but something composed of soul and body. Plato, through supposing that sensation was proper to the soul, could maintain man to be a soul making use of the body. Reply to Objection 1. According to the philosopher, parentheses, Ethics 9.8, a thing seems to be chiefly what is principal in it. Thus, what the governor of a state does, the state is said to do. In this way, sometimes what is principal in man is said to be man. Sometimes, indeed, the intellectual part which, in accordance with truth, is called the inward man. And sometimes the sensitive part with the body is called man, in the opinion of those whose observation does not go beyond the senses and this is called the outward man. Reply to Objection 2. Not every particular substance is a hypostasis or a person, but that which has the complete nature of its species. Hence, a hand or a foot is not called a hypostasis or a person, nor likewise is the soul alone so called, since it is part of the human species. Part 1, Question 75, Article 5. Whether the soul is composed of matter and form. Objection 1. It would seem that the soul is composed of matter and form, for potentiality is opposed to actuality. Now, whatsoever things are in actuality participate of the first act, which is God, by participation of whom all things are good, are beings, and are living things, as is clear from the teaching of Dionysius in Divine Names 5. 
Therefore, whatsoever things are in potentiality participate of the first potentiality. But the first potentiality is primary matter. Therefore, since the human soul is, after a manner, in potentiality, which appears from the fact that sometimes a man is potentially understanding, it seems that the human soul must participate of primary matter as part of itself. Objection 2. Further, wherever the properties of matter are found, there matter is. But the properties of matter are found in the soul, namely, to be a subject and to be changed, for it is a subject to science and virtue, and it changes from ignorance to knowledge and from vice to virtue. Therefore, matter is in the soul. Objection 3. Further, things which have no matter have no cause of their existence, as the philosopher says, Metaphysics 8, Didascale 7, 6. But the soul has a cause of its existence, since it is created by God. Therefore, the soul has matter. Objection 4. Further, what has no matter, and is a form only, is a pure act and is infinite. But this belongs to God alone. Therefore, the soul has matter. On the contrary, Augustine, in the literal meaning of Genesis 7, 7, 8, and 9, proves that the soul was made neither of corporeal matter nor of spiritual matter. I answer that the soul has no matter. We may consider this question in two ways. First, from the notion of a soul in general, for it belongs to the notion of a soul to be the form of a body. Now either it is a form by virtue of itself, in its entirety, or by virtue of some part of itself. If by virtue of itself in its entirety, then it is impossible that any part of it should be matter. If by matter we understand something purely potential, for a form, as such, is an act, and that which is purely potentiality cannot be part of an act, since potentiality is repugnant to actuality as being opposite thereto. If, however, it be a form by virtue of a part of itself, then we call that part the soul, and that matter which it actualizes first we call the primary animate. Secondly, we may proceed from the specific notion of the human soul inasmuch as it is intellectual. For it is clear that whatever is received into something is received according to the condition of the recipient. Now a thing is known in as far as its form is in the knower. But the intellectual soul knows a thing in its nature absolutely. For instance, it knows a stone absolutely as a stone, and therefore the form of a stone absolutely, as to its proper formal idea, is in the intellectual soul. Therefore, the intellectual soul itself is an absolute form, and not something composed of matter and form. For if the intellectual soul were composed of matter and form, the form of things would be received into it as individuals, 
and so it would only know the individual. Just as it happens with the sensitive powers which receive forms in a corporeal organ, since matter is the principle by which forms are individualized. It follows, therefore, that the intellectual soul and every intellectual substance which has knowledge of forms absolutely is exempt from composition of matter and form. Reply to Objection 1. The first act is the universal principle of all acts, because it is infinite, virtually pre-containing all things, as Dionysius says, parentheses divine names 5. Wherefore things participate of it, not as a part of themselves, but by diffusion of its processions. Now as potentiality is receptive of act, it must be proportionate to act. But the acts receive which proceed from the first infinite act, and our participations thereof are diverse, so that there cannot be one potentiality which receives all acts, as there is one act from which all participated acts are derived. For then the receptive potentiality would equal the active potentiality of the first act. Now, the receptive potentiality in the intellectual soul is other than the receptive potentiality of first matter, as appears from the diversity of the things received by each. For primary matter receives individual forms, whereas the intelligence receives absolute forms. Hence, the existence of such a potentiality in the intellectual soul does not prove that the soul is composed of matter and form. Reply to Objection 2. To be a subject and to be changed belong to matter by reason of its being in potentiality. As, therefore, the potentiality of the intelligence is one thing and the potentiality of primary matter another, so in each is there a different reason of subjection and change. For the intelligence is subject to knowledge and is changed from ignorance to knowledge by reason of its being in potentiality with regard to the intelligible species. Reply to Objection 3. The form causes matter to be, and so does the agent, wherefore the agent causes matter to be, so far as it actualizes it by transmuting it to the act of a form. A subsistent form, however, does not owe its existence to some formal principle, nor has it a cause transmuting it from the potentiality to act. So after the words quoted above, the philosopher concludes that in things composed of matter and form, there is no other cause but that which moves from potentiality to act, while whatsoever things have no matter are simply beings at once. In brackets, the Leonine edition has simpliciter sunt quod vere antia aliquid. The Parma edition of St. Thomas's commentary on Aristotle has statim per se unum quidam est et ens quidam. Reply to Objection 4. Everything participated is compared to the participator as its act. But whatever created form be supposed to subsist per se must have existence by participation. For even life, or anything of that sort, is a participator of existence, 
as Dionysius says, parentheses, divine names, five. Now participated existence is limited by the capacity of the participator, so that God alone, who is his own existence, is pure act and infinite. But in intellectual substances, there is composition of actuality and potentiality, not, indeed, of matter and form, but of form and participated existence. Wherefore, some say that they are composed of that whereby they are, and that which they are, for existence itself is that by which a thing is. Part 1, Question 5, Article 6 Whether the Human Soul is Incorruptible Objection 1. It would seem that the human soul is corruptible. For those things that have a like beginning and process seemingly have a like end. But the beginning, by generation, of men is like that of animals, for they are made from the earth. And the process of life is alike in both, because all things breathe alike, and man hath nothing more than the beast, as it is written. Parentheses, Ecclesiastes 3.19 Therefore, as the same text concludes, the death of man and beast is one, and the condition of both is equal. But the souls of brute animals are corruptible. Therefore, also, the human soul is corruptible. Objection 2. Further, Whatever is out of nothing can return to nothingness, because the end should correspond to the beginning. But as it is written, parentheses, wisdom, two, two, we are born of nothing, which is true not only of the body, but also of the soul. Therefore, as is concluded in the same passage, after this we shall be as if we had not been, even as to our soul. Objection 3. Further, nothing is without its own proper operation, but the operation proper to the soul, which is to understand through a phantasm, cannot be without the body, for the soul understands nothing without a phantasm, and there is no phantasm without the body, as the philosopher says, parentheses, on the soul, 1, 1. Therefore, the soul cannot survive the dissolution of the body. On the contrary, Dionysius says, parentheses, divine names, four, that human souls owe to divine goodness that they are intellectual and that they have an incorruptible substantial life. I answer that we must assert that the intellectual principle which we call the human soul is incorruptible for a thing may be corrupted in two ways per se and accidentally now it is impossible for any substance to be generated or corrupted accidentally that is by the generation or corruption of something else for generation and corruption belong to a thing just as existence belongs to it which is acquired by generation and lost by corruption Therefore, whatever has existence per se cannot be generated or corrupted except per se, while things which do not subsist, such as accidents and material forms, 
acquire existence or lose it through the generation or corruption of composite things. Now it was shown above, parentheses, articles 2 and 3, that the souls of brutes are not self-subsistent, whereas the human soul is, so that the souls of brutes are corrupted when their bodies are corrupted, while the human soul could not be corrupted unless it were corrupted per se. This indeed is impossible, not only as regards the human soul, but also as regards anything subsistent that is a form alone. For it is clear that what belongs to a thing by virtue of itself is inseparable from it, but existence belongs to a form, which is an act, by virtue of itself. Wherefore matter acquires actual existence as it acquires the form, while it is corrupted so far as the form is separated from it. But it is impossible for a form to be separated from itself, and therefore it is impossible for a subsistent form to cease to exist. Granted, even that a soul is composed of matter and form, as some pretend, we should nevertheless have to maintain that it is incorruptible. For corruption is found only where there is contrariety, since generation and corruption are from contraries and into contraries. Wherefore the heavenly bodies, since they have no matter subject to contrariety, are incorruptible. Now, there can be no contrariety in the intellectual soul, for it receives according to the manner of its existence, and those things which it receives are without contrariety, for the notions even of contraries are not themselves contrary, since contraries belong to the same knowledge. Therefore, it is impossible for the intellectual soul to be corruptible. Moreover, we may take a sign of this from the fact that everything naturally aspires to existence after its own manner. Now, in things that have knowledge, desire ensues upon knowledge. The senses indeed do not know existence, except under the conditions of here and now, whereas the intellect apprehends existence absolutely and for all time so that everything that has an intellect naturally desires always to exist. But a natural desire cannot be in vain. Therefore, every intellectual substance is incorruptible. Reply to Objection 1 Solomon reasons thus in the person of the foolish, as expressed in the words of Wisdom 2. Therefore, the saying that man and animals have a like beginning in generation is true of the body, for all animals alike are made of earth. But it is not true of the soul, for the souls of brutes are produced by some power of the body, whereas the human soul is produced by God. To signify this, it is written as to other animals. Let the earth bring forth the living soul. Parentheses, Genesis 1.24 While of man it is written, parentheses, Genesis 2.7, that he breathed into his face the breath of life. And so in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, parentheses 12.7, it is concluded, Before the dust return into its earth from whence it was, and the spirit return to God who gave it.
Again the process of life is alike as to the body concerning which it is written. Parentheses, Ecclesiastes 3.19 All things breathe alike and Parentheses, Wisdom 2.2 2. The breath in our nostrils is smoke. But the process is not alike of the soul, for man is intelligent, whereas animals are not. Hence, it is false to say, man has nothing more than beasts. Thus, death comes to both alike, as to the body, but not as to the soul. Reply to Objection 2. As a thing can be created by reason, not of a passive potentiality, but only of the active potentiality of the creator, who can produce something out of nothing, so when we say that a thing can be reduced to nothing, we do not imply in the creature a potentiality to non-existence, but in the creator the power of ceasing to sustain existence. But a thing is said to be corruptible because there is in it a potentiality to non-existence. Reply to Objection 3. To understand through a phantasm is the proper operation of the soul by virtue of its union with the body. After separation from the body, it will have another mode of understanding, similar to other substances separated from bodies, as will appear later on. Parentheses, question 89, article 1. Part 1, question 75, article 7. Whether the soul is of the same species as an angel. Objection 1. It would seem that the soul is of the same species as an angel. For each thing is ordained to its proper end by the nature of its species, whence is derived its inclination for that end. But the end of the soul is the same as that of an angel, namely eternal happiness. Therefore, they are of the same species. Objection 2. Further, the ultimate specific difference is the noblest because it completes the nature of the species. But there is nothing nobler either in angel or in the soul than their intellectual nature. Therefore, the soul and the angel agree in the ultimate specific difference, therefore they belong to the same species. Objection 3. Further, it seems that the soul does not differ from an angel except in its union with the body. But as the body is outside the essence of the soul, it seems that it does not belong to its species. Therefore, the soul and angel are of the same species. On the contrary, things which have different natural operations are of different species. But the natural operations of the soul and of the angel are different, since, as Dionysius says, parentheses, divine names, 7, angelic minds have simple and blessed intelligence, not gathering their knowledge of divine things from visible things. Subsequently, he says the contrary to this of the soul, Therefore, the soul and an angel are not of the same species. I answer that Origen, in parentheses, on first principles, 3, 5, held that human souls and angels are all of the same species, and this because he supposed that in these substances the difference of degree was accidental, as resulting from their free will. 
as we have seen above, parentheses, question 47, article 2. But this cannot be, for in incorporeal substances there cannot be diversity of number without diversity of species and inequality of nature, because as they are not composed of matter and form, but are subsistent forms, it is clear that there is necessarily among them a diversity of species. For a separate form cannot be understood otherwise than of one of a single species. Thus, supposing a separate whiteness to exist, it could only be one, for as much as one whiteness does not differ from another, except as in this or that subject. But diversity of species is always accompanied with a diversity of nature. Thus in species of colors, one is more perfect than another, and the same applies to other species, because differences which divide a genus are contrary to one another. Contraries, however, are compared to one another as the perfect to the imperfect, since the principle of contrariety is habit and privation thereof, as is written, Metaphysics 10, Didascale 9, 4. The same would follow if the aforesaid substances were composed of matter and form. For if the matter of one be distinct from the matter of another, it follows that either the form is the principle of the distinction of matter, that is to say, that the matter is distinct on account of its relation to diverse forms, and even then there would result a difference of species and inequality of nature, or else the matter is the principle of the distinction of forms. But one matter cannot be distinct from another, except by a distinction of quantity, which has no place in these incorporeal substances, such as an angel and the soul, so that it is not possible for the angel and the soul to be of the same species. How it is that there can be many souls of one species will be explained later. Parentheses, question 76, article 2, reply 1. Reply to objection 1. This argument proceeds from the proximate and natural end. Eternal happiness is the ultimate and supernatural end. Reply to Objection 2. The ultimate specific difference is the noblest because it is the most determinate, in the same way as actuality is nobler than potentiality. Thus, however, the intellectual faculty is not the noblest, because it is indeterminate and common to many degrees of intellectuality, as the sensible faculty is common to many degrees in the sensible nature. Hence, as all sensible things are not of one species, so neither are all intellectual things of one species. Reply to Objection 3. The body is not of the essence of the soul, but the soul, by the nature of its essence, can be united to the body, so that, properly speaking, not the soul alone, but the composite, is the species. And the very fact that the soul, in a certain way, requires the body for its operation, proves that the soul is endowed with a grade of intellectuality inferior to that of an angel, who is not united to a body. End of question 75 Recording by Laurie Arsenault, Maine
Question 76 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devin Pertz. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 76 of the Union of Body and Soul, and Eight Articles, Part 1. We now consider the union of the soul with the body, and concerning this there are eight points of inquiry. 1. Whether the intellectual principle is united to the body as its form? 2. Whether the intellectual principle is multiplied numerically according to the number of bodies, or is there one intelligence for all men? 3 whether in the body, the form of which is an intellectual principle, there is some other soul? 4. Whether in the body there is any other substantial form? 5. Of the qualities required in the body, of which the intellectual principle is the form? 6. Whether it be united to such a body by means of another body? 7. Whether by means of an accident? 8. Whether the soul is wholly in each part of the body? First Article 1, Question 76, Article 1. Whether the intellectual principle is united to the body as its form. Objection 1. It seems that the intellectual principle is not united to the body as its form. For the philosopher says, on the soul, 3, 4, that the intellect is separate, and that it is not the act of any body. Therefore, it is not united to the body as its form. Objection 2. Further, Every form is determined according to the nature of the matter of which it is the form. Otherwise, no proportion would be required between matter and form. Therefore, if the intellect were united to the body as its form, since everybody has a determinate nature, it would follow that the intellect has a determinate nature, and thus it would not be capable of knowing all things, as is clear from what has been said. Question 75, Article 2 which is contrary to the nature of the intellect. Therefore, the intellect is not united to the body as its form. Objection 3. Further, whatever receptive power is an act of a body receives a form materially and individually, for what is received must be received according to the condition of the receiver. But the form of the thing understood is not received into the intellect materially and individually, but rather immaterially and universally. Otherwise, the intellect would not be capable of the knowledge of immaterial and universal objects, but only of individuals like the senses. Therefore, the intellect is not united to the body as its form. Objection 4. Further, power and action have the same subject, for the same subject is what can and does act. But the intellectual action is not the action of a body, as appears from above, question 75, article 2. Therefore neither is the intellectual faculty a power of the body. But virtue or power cannot be more abstract or more simple than the essence from which the faculty or power is derived. Therefore neither is the substance of the intellect the form of a body. Objection 5. Further, whatever has per se existence is not united to the body as its form, because a form is that by which a thing exists so that the very existence of a form does not belong to the form by itself. 
but the intellectual principle has per se existence and is subsistence, as was said above. Question 75, Article 2. Therefore, it is not united to the body as its form. Objection 6. Further, whatever exists in a thing by reason of its nature exists in it always. But to be united to matter belongs to the form by reason of its nature, because form is the act of matter, not by an accidental quality, but by its own essence. Otherwise matter and form would not make a thing substantially one, but only accidentally one. Therefore, a form cannot be without its own proper matter. But the intellectual principle, since it is incorruptible, as was shown above, question 75, article 6, remains separate from the body after the dissolution of the body. Therefore, the intellectual principle is not united to the body as its form. On the contrary, according to the philosopher, Metaphysics 8, Didascali 7, 2, difference is derived from the form. But the difference which constitutes man is rational, which is applied to man on account of his intellectual principle. Therefore, the intellectual principle is the form of man. I answer that, we must assert that the intellect, which is the principle of intellectual operation, is the form of the human body. For that whereby primarily anything acts is a form of the thing to which the act is to be attributed. For instance, that whereby a body is primarily healed is health, and that whereby the soul knows primarily is knowledge. Hence health is a form of the body, and knowledge is a form of the soul. The reason is because nothing acts except so far as it is an act, wherefore a thing acts by that whereby it is an act. Now it is clear that the first thing by which the body lives is the soul, and as life appears through various operations and different degrees of living things, that whereby we primarily perform each of all these vital actions is the soul. For the soul is the primary principle of our nourishment, sensation, and local movement, and likewise of our understanding. Therefore, this principle by which we primarily understand, whether it be called the intellect or the intellectual soul, is the form of the body. This is the demonstration used by Aristotle on the soul 2.2. But if anyone says that the intellectual soul is not the form of the body, he must first explain how it is that this action of understanding is the action of this particular man. For each one is conscious that it is himself who understands. Now, an action may be attributed to anyone in three ways, as is clear from the philosopher Physics 5, 1. For a thing is said to move or act either by virtue of its whole self, for instance, as a physician heals, or by virtue of a part, as a man sees by his eye, or through an accidental quality, as when we say that something that is white builds, because it is accidental to the builder to be white. So when we say that Socrates or Plato understands, it is clear that this is not attributed to him accidentally, since it is ascribed to him as man, which is predicated of him essentially. We must therefore say either that Socrates understands by virtue of his whole self, as Plato maintained, holding that man is an intellectual soul, or that intelligence is a part of Socrates. The first cannot stand, as was shown above, question 75, article 4, for this reason, that it is one and the same man who is conscious both that he understands and that he senses. But one cannot sense without a body, therefore the body must be some part of man. It follows, therefore, that the intellect by which Socrates understands 
is a part of Socrates, so that in some way it is united to the body of Socrates. The commentator held that this union is through the intelligible species as having a double subject in the possible intellect and in the phantasms which are in the corporeal organs. Thus, through the intelligible species, the possible intellect is linked to the body of this or that particular man. But this link or union does not sufficiently explain the fact that the act of the intellect is the act of Socrates. This can be clearly seen from comparison with the sensitive faculty from which Aristotle proceeds to consider things relating to the intellect. For the relation of phantasms to the intellect is like the relation of colors to the sense of sight, as he says on the soul 3, 5 through 7. Therefore, as the species of colors are in the sight, so are the species of phantasms in the possible intellect. Now it is clear that because the colors, the images of which are in the sight, are on a wall, the action of seeing is not attributed to the wall, for we do not say that the wall sees, but rather that it is seen. Therefore, from the fact that the species of phantasms are in the possible intellect, it does not follow that Socrates, in whom are the phantasms, understands, but that he or his phantasms are understood. Some, however, tried to maintain that the intellect is united to the body as its motor and hence that the intellect and body form one thing so that the act of the intellect could be attributed to the whole. This is, however, absurd for many reasons. First, because the intellect does not move the body except through the appetite, the movement of which presupposes the operation of the intellect. The reason, therefore, why Socrates understands is not because he is moved by his intellect, but rather, contrariwise, he is moved by his intellect because he understands. Secondly, because since Socrates is an individual in a nature of one essence composed of matter and form, if the intellect be not the form, it follows that it must be outside the essence, and then the intellect is the whole Socrates as a motor of the thing moved, whereas the act of intellect remains in the agent and does not pass into something else, as does the action of heating. Therefore, the action of understanding cannot be attributed to Socrates for the reason that he is moved by his intellect. Thirdly, because the action of a motor is never attributed to the thing moved, except as to an instrument, as the action of a carpenter to a saw, therefore, if understanding is attributed to Socrates as the action of what moves him, it follows that it is attributed to him as to an instrument, this is contrary to the teaching of the philosopher, who holds that understanding is not possible through a corporeal instrument, on the soul 3.4. Fourthly, because, although the action of a part be attributed to the whole, as the action of the eye is attributed to a man, yet it is never attributed to another part, except perhaps indirectly, for we do not say that the hand sees because the eye sees, Therefore, if the intellect and Socrates are united in the above manner, the action of the intellect cannot be attributed to Socrates. If, however, Socrates be a whole composed of a union of the intellect with whatever else belongs to Socrates, and still the intellect be united to those other things only as a motor, it follows that Socrates is not one absolutely, and consequently neither a being absolutely, for a thing is a being according as it is one. There remains, therefore, no other explanation than that given by Aristotle, namely, that this particular man understands, 
because the intellectual principle is his form. Thus, from the very operation of the intellect, it is made clear that the intellectual principle is united to the body as its form. The same can be clearly shown from the nature of the human species, for the nature of each thing is shown by its operation. Now the proper operation of man as man is to understand, because he thereby surpasses all other animals. Whence Aristotle concludes, Ethics 10.7, that the ultimate happiness of man must consist in this operation as properly belonging to him. Man must therefore derive his species from that which is the principle of this operation. But the species of anything is derived from its form. It follows, therefore, that the intellectual principle is the proper form of man. But we must observe that the nobler a form is, the more it rises above corporeal matter, the less it is merged in matter, and the more it excels matter by its power and its operation. Hence we find that the form of a mixed body has another operation not caused by its elemental qualities. And the higher we advance in the nobility of forms, the more we find that the power of the form excels the elementary matter, as the vegetative soul excels the form of the metal, and the sensitive soul excels the vegetative soul. Now the human soul is the highest and noblest of forms, wherefore it excels corporeal matter in its power by the fact that it has an operation and a power in which corporeal matter has no share whatever. This power is called the intellect. It is well to remark that if any one holds that the soul is composed of matter and form, it would follow that in no way could the soul be the form of the body. For since the form is an act, and matter is only in potentiality, that which is composed of matter and form cannot be the form of another by virtue of itself as a whole. But if it is a form by virtue of some part of itself, then that part which is the form we call the soul, and that of which it is the form we call the primary animate, as was said above, Question 75, Article 5. Reply, Objection 1. As the philosopher says, Physics 2.2, the ultimate natural form to which the consideration of the natural philosopher is directed is indeed separate, yet it exists in matter. He proves this from the fact that man and the sun generate man from matter. It is separate indeed according to its intellectual power, because the intellectual power does not belong to a corporeal organ, as the power of seeing is the act of the eye. For understanding is an act which cannot be performed by a corporeal organ, like the act of seeing. But it exists in matter so far as the soul itself, to which this power belongs, is the form of the body and the term of human generation. And so the philosopher says, on the soul three, that the intellect is separate because it is not the faculty of a corporeal organ. From this it is clear how to answer the second and third objections, since, in order that man may be able to understand all things by means of his intellect, and that his intellect may understand immaterial things and universals, it is sufficient that the intellectual power be not the act of the body. Reply Objection 4 the human soul, by reason of its perfection, is not a form merged in matter, or entirely embraced by matter. Therefore, there is nothing to prevent some power thereof not being the act of the body, although the soul is essentially the form of the body. Reply Objection 5. 
the soul communicates that existence in which it subsists to the corporeal matter, out of which and the intellectual soul there results unity of existence, so that the existence of the whole composite is also the existence of the soul. This is not the case with other non-subsistent forms. For this reason the human soul retains its own existence after the dissolution of the body, whereas it is not so with other forms. Reply Objection 6 To be united to the body belongs to the soul by reason of itself, as it belongs to a light body by reason of itself to be raised up. And as a light body remains light, when removed from its proper place, retaining meanwhile an aptitude and an inclination for its proper place, so the human soul retains its proper existence when separated from the body, having an aptitude and a natural inclination to be united to the body. Second Article 1, Question 76, Article 2. Whether the intellectual principle is multiplied according to the number of bodies. Objection 1. It would seem that the intellectual principle is not multiplied according to the number of bodies, but that there is one intellect in all men. For an immaterial substance is not multiplied in number within one species, but the human soul is an immaterial substance, since it is not composed of matter and form, as was shown above, question 75, article 5. Therefore there are not many human souls in one species, but all men are of one species. Therefore there is but one intellect in all men. Objection 2. Further, when the cause is removed, the effect is also removed. Therefore, if human souls were multiplied according to the number of bodies, it follows that the bodies being removed, the number of souls would not remain, but from all the souls there would be but a single remainder. This is heretical, for it would do away with the distinction of rewards and punishments. Objection 3. Further, if my intellect is distinct from your intellect, my intellect is an individual, and so is yours. For individuals are things which differ in number, but agree in one species. Now whatever is received into anything must be received according to the condition of the receiver. Therefore, the species of things would be received individually into my intellect, and also into yours, which is contrary to the nature of the intellect which knows universals. Objection 4. Further, the thing understood is in the intellect which understands. If, therefore, my intellect is distinct from yours, what is understood by me must be distinct from what is understood by you, and consequently it will be reckoned as something individual, and be only potentially something understood, so that the common intention will have to be abstracted from both, since from things diverse something intelligible common to them may be abstracted. But this is contrary to the nature of the intellect, for then the intellect would seem not to be distinct from the imagination. It seems, therefore, to follow that there is one intellect in all men. Objection 5. Further, when the disciple receives knowledge from the master, it cannot be said that the master's knowledge begets knowledge in the disciple, because then also knowledge would be an act of form, such as he does, which is clearly false. It seems, therefore, that the same individual knowledge which is in the master is communicated to the disciple, which cannot be, unless there is one intellect in both. Seemingly, therefore, the intellect of the disciple and master is but one, and consequently the same applies to all men. Objection 6. 
Further, Augustine, on the measure of the soul, 32, says, If I were to say that there are many human souls, I should laugh at myself. But the soul seems to be one chiefly on account of the intellect. Therefore, there is one intellect of all men. On the contrary, the philosopher says, Physics 2, 3, that the relation of universal causes to universals is like the relation of particular causes to individuals, but it is impossible that a soul, one in species, should belong to animals of different species. Therefore, it is impossible that one individual intellectual soul should belong to several individuals. I answer that it is absolutely impossible for one intellect to belong to all men. This is clear if, as Plato maintained, man is the intellect itself, for it would follow that Socrates and Plato are one man, and that they are not distinct from each other, except by something outside the essence of each. The distinction between Socrates and Plato would be no other than that of one man with a tunic and another with a cloak, which is quite absurd. It is likewise clear that this is impossible if, according to the opinion of Aristotle, on the soul 2.2, it is supposed that the intellect is a part or a power of the soul which is the form of man, for it is impossible for many distinct individuals to have one form, as it is impossible for them to have one existence, for the form is the principle of existence. Again, this is clearly impossible, whatever one may hold as to the manner of the union of the intellect to this or that man, for it is manifest that, supposing there is one principal agent and two instruments, we can say that there is one agent absolutely, but several actions, as when one man touches several things with his two hands, there will be one who touches, but two contacts. If, on the contrary, we suppose one instrument and several principal agents, we might say that there are several agents, but one act. For example, if there be many drawing a ship by means of a rope, there will be many drawing, but one pull. If, however, there is one principal agent and one instrument, we say that there is one agent and one action, as when the smith strikes with one hammer, there is one striker and one stroke. Now it is clear that no matter how the intellect is united or coupled to this or that man, the intellect has the precedence of all the other things which appertain to man, for the sensitive powers obey the intellect and are at its service. Therefore, if we suppose two men to have several intellects and one sense, for instance, if two men had one eye, there would be several seers but one sight. But if there is one intellect, no matter how diverse may be all those things of which the intellect makes use as instruments, in no way is it possible to say that Socrates and Plato are otherwise than one understanding man. And if to this we add that to understand, which is the act of the intellect, is not affected by any organ other than the intellect itself, it will further follow that there is but one agent and one action, that is to say that all men are but one understander and have but one act of understanding, in regard, that is, of one intelligible object. However, it would be possible to distinguish my intellectual action from yours by the distinction of the phantasms, that is to say, were there one phantasm of a stone in me and another in you, if the phantasm itself, as it is one thing in me and another in you, 
were a form of the possible intellect, since the same agent according to divers' forms produces divers' actions, as according to divers' forms of things with regard to the same eye, there are divers' visions. But the phantasm itself is not a form of the possible intellect, it is the intelligible species abstracted from the phantasm that is a form. Now in one intellect, from different phantasms of the same species, only one intelligible species is abstracted, as appears in one man, in whom there may be different phantasms of a stone, yet from all of them only one intelligible species of a stone is abstracted, by which the intellect of that one man, by one operation, understands the nature of a stone, notwithstanding the diversity of phantasms. Therefore, if there were one intellect for all men, the diversity of phantasms which are in this one and that one would not cause a diversity of intellectual operation in this man and that man. It follows, therefore, that it is altogether impossible and unreasonable to maintain that there exists one intellect for all men. Reply Objection 1. Although the intellectual soul, like an angel, has no matter from which it is produced, yet it is the form of a certain matter in which it is unlike an angel. Therefore, according to the division of matter, there are many souls of one species, while it is quite impossible for many angels to be of one species. Reply Objection 2. Everything has unity in the same way that it has being. Consequently, we must judge of the multiplicity of a thing as we judge of its being. Now it is clear that the intellectual soul, by virtue of its very being, is united to the body as its form, yet, after the dissolution of the body, the intellectual soul retains its own being. In like matter, the multiplicity of souls is in proportion to the multiplicity of the bodies, yet, after the dissolution of the bodies, the souls retain their multiplied being. Reply Objection 3. Individuality of the intelligent being, or of the species whereby it understands, does not exclude the understanding of universals. Otherwise, since separate intellects are subsistent substances, and consequently individual, they could not understand universals. But the materiality of the knower, and of the species whereby it knows, impedes the knowledge of the universal. For as every action is according to the mode of the form by which the agent acts, as heating is according to the mode of the heat, so knowledge is according to the mode of the species by which the knower knows. Now it is clear that the common nature becomes distinct and multiplied by reason of the individuating principles which come from the matter. Therefore, if the form, which is the means of knowledge, is material, that is, not abstracted from material conditions, its likeness to the nature of a species or genus will be according to the distinction and multiplication of that nature by means of individuating principles, so that knowledge of the nature of a thing in general will be impossible, but if the species be abstracted from the conditions of individual matter, there will be a likeness of the nature without those things which make it distinct and multiplied, Thus there will be knowledge of the universal, nor does it matter, as to this particular point, whether there will be one intellect or many, because, even if there were but one, it would necessarily be an individual intellect, and the species whereby it understands an individual species. Reply Objection 4. Whether the intellect be one or many, what is understood is one, for what is understood is in the intellect not according to its own nature, 
but according to its likeness. For the stone is not in the soul, but its likeness is, as is said on the soul 3.8. Yet it is the stone which is understood, not the likeness of the stone, except by a reflection of the intellect on itself. Otherwise, the objects of sciences would not be things, but only intelligible species. Now, it happens that different things, according to different forms, are likened to the same thing, and since knowledge is begotten according to the assimilation of the knower to the thing known, it follows that the same thing may happen to be known by several knowers, as is apparent in regard to the senses, for several see the same color according to different likenesses. In the same way, several intellects understand one object understood, but there is this difference, according to the opinion of Aristotle, between the sense and the intelligence, that a thing is perceived by the sense according to the disposition which it has outside the soul, that is, in its individuality, whereas the nature of the thing understood is indeed outside the soul, but the mode according to which it exists outside the soul is not the mode according to which it is understood. For the common nature is understood as apart from the individuating principles, whereas such is not its mode of existence outside the soul. But, according to the opinion of Plato, the thing understood exists outside the soul in the same condition as those under which it is understood, for he supposed that the natures of things exist separate from matter. Reply Objection 5. One knowledge exists in the disciple and another in the master, how it is caused will be shown later on. Question 117, Article 1. Reply, Objection 6. Augustine denies a plurality of souls that would involve a plurality of species. Third Article 1, Question 76, Article 3. Whether besides the intellectual soul there are in man other souls essentially different from one another. Objection 1. It would seem that besides the intellectual soul there are in man other souls essentially different from one another, such as the sensitive soul and the nutritive soul. For corruptible and incorruptible are not of the same substance, but the intellectual soul is incorruptible, whereas the other souls, as the sensitive and the nutritive, are corruptible, as was shown above. Question 75, Article 6. Therefore, in man the essence of the intellectual soul the sensitive soul and the nutritive soul cannot be the same. Objection 2. Further, if it be said that the sensitive soul in man is incorruptible, on the contrary, corruptible and incorruptible differ generically, says the philosopher, Metaphysics 10, Didascali 9, 10. But the sensitive soul in the horse, the lion, and other brute animals is corruptible. If, therefore, in man it be incorruptible, the sensitive soul in man and brute animals will not be of the same genus. Now, an animal is so called from its having a sensitive soul, and, therefore, animal will not be one genus common to man and other animals, which is absurd. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says, Metaphysics 8, Didascali 7, 2, that the genus is taken from the matter and difference from the form, but rational, which is the difference constituting man, is taken from the intellectual soul, while he is called animal by reason of his having a body animated by a sensitive soul. Therefore, the intellectual soul may be compared to the body animated by a sensitive soul as form to matter. Therefore, in man the intellectual soul 
is not essentially the same as the sensitive soul, but presupposes it as a material subject. On the contrary, it is said in the book on the dogmas of the church, 15, nor do we say that there are two souls in one man, as James and other Syrians write, one animal by which the body is animated and which is mingled with the blood, the other spiritual which obeys the reason, but we say that it is one and the same soul in man that both gives life to the body by being united to it and orders itself by its own reasoning. I answer that Plato held that there were several souls in one body, distinct even as to organs, to which souls he referred the different vital actions, saying that the nutritive power is in the liver, the concupiscible in the heart, and the power of knowledge in the brain, which opinion is rejected by Aristotle on the soul too, too, with regard to those parts of the soul which use corporeal organs, for this reason, that in those animals which continue to live when they have been divided in each part are observed the operations of the soul as sense and appetite. Now this would not be the case if the various principles of the soul's operations were essentially different and distributed in the various parts of the body. But with regard to the intellectual part, he seems to leave it in doubt whether it be only logically distinct from the other parts of the soul, or also locally. The opinion of Plato might be maintained if, as he held, the soul was supposed to be united to the body, not as its form, but as its motor, for it involves nothing unreasonable that the same movable thing be moved by several motors, and still less if it be moved according to its various parts. If we suppose, however, that the soul is united to the body as its form, it is quite impossible for several essentially different souls to be in one body. This can be made clear by three different reasons. In the first place, an animal would not be absolutely one, in which there were several souls, for nothing is absolutely one except by one form, by which a thing has existence, because a thing has from the same source both existence and unity, and therefore things which are denominated by various forms are not absolutely one, as, for instance, a white man, if, therefore, man were living by one form, the vegetative soul, an animal by another form, the sensitive soul, and man by another form, the intellectual soul, it would follow that man is not absolutely one. Thus, Aristotle argues, Metaphysics 8, Didascale 7, 6, against Plato, that if the idea of an animal is distinct from the idea of a biped, then a biped animal is not absolutely one. For this reason, against those who hold that there are several souls in the body, he asks, on the soul 1, 5, what contains them? That is, what makes them one? It cannot be said that they are united by the one body, because rather does the soul contain the body and make it one than the reverse. Secondly, this is proved to be impossible by the manner in which one thing is predicated of another, those things which are derived from various forms are predicated of one another, either accidentally, if the forms are not ordered to one another, as when we say that something white is sweet, or essentially, in the second manner of essential predication, if the forms are ordered one to another, the subject belonging to the definition of the predicate, as a surface is presupposed to color, so that if we say that a body with a surface is colored, we have the second matter of essential predication, 
Therefore, if we have one form by which a thing is an animal, and another form by which it is a man, it follows either that one of these two things could not be predicated of the other, except accidentally, supposing these two forms not to be ordered to one another, or that one would be predicated of the other according to the second manner of essential predication, if one soul be presupposed to the other. But both of these consequences are clearly false, because animal is predicated of man essentially and not accidentally, and man is not part of the definition of an animal, but the other way about. Therefore, of necessity, by the same form, a thing is animal and man. Otherwise, man would not really be the thing which is an animal, so that animal can be essentially predicated of man. Thirdly, this is shown to be impossible by the fact that when one operation of the soul is intense, it impedes another, which could never be the case unless the principle of action were essentially one. We must therefore conclude that in man the sensitive soul, the intellectual soul, and the nutritive soul are numerically one soul. This can easily be explained if we consider the differences of species and forms. For we observe that the species and forms of things differ from one another, as the perfect and imperfect, as in the order of things, the animate are more perfect than the inanimate, and animals more perfect than plants, and man than brute animals, and in each of these genera there are various degrees. For this reason Aristotle, Metaphysics 8, Didascale 7, 3, compares the species of things to numbers, differ in species by the addition or subtraction of unity, and, on the soul, two, three, he compares the various souls to the species of figures, one of which contains another, as the pentagon contains and exceeds a tetragon. Thus, the intellectual soul contains virtually whatever belongs to the sensitive soul of brute animals, and to the nutritive souls of plants. Therefore, as a surface which is of a pentagonal shape is not tetragonal by one shape, and pentagonal by another, since a tetragonal shape would be superfluous as contained in the pentagonal, so neither is Socrates a man by one soul, and animal by another, but by one and the same soul he is both animal and man. Reply Objection 1. The sensitive soul is incorruptible, not by reason of its being sensitive, but by reason of its being intellectual. When, therefore, a soul is sensitive only, it is corruptible, but when, with sensibility, it has also intellectuality, it is incorruptible. For although sensibility does not give incorruptibility, yet it cannot deprive intellectuality of its incorruptibility. Reply Objection 2. Not forms, but composites, are classified either generically or specifically. Now man is corruptible like other animals, and so the difference of corruptible and incorruptible, which is on the part of the forms, does not involve a generic difference between man and the other animals. Reply Objection 3. The embryo has first of all a soul which is merely sensitive, and when this is removed, it is supplanted by a more perfect soul, which is both sensitive and intellectual, as will be shown further on. Question 118, Article 2, Reply, Objection 2. Reply, Objection 4. We must not consider the diversity of natural things as proceeding from the various logical notions or intentions which flow from our manner of understanding, because reason can apprehend one and the same thing in various ways. Therefore, since, as we have said, 
the intellectual soul contains virtually what belongs to the sensitive soul, and something more, reason can consider separately what belongs to the power of the sensitive soul, as something imperfect and material. And because it observes that this is something common to man and to other animals, it forms thence the notion of the genus, while that wherein the intellectual soul exceeds the sensitive soul, it takes as formal and perfecting, thence it gathers the difference of man. End of question 76, part 1. Recording by Devin Pertz, El Paso, Texas. Question 76, Part 2, A Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 76. Of the Union of Body and Soul. Part 2. Fourth Article. Question 76. Article 4. Whether in man there is another form besides the intellectual soul. Objection 1. It would seem that in man there is another form besides the intellectual soul. For the philosopher says, on the soul 2.1, that the soul is the act of a physical body which has life potentially. Therefore the soul is to the body as a form of matter. But the body has a substantial form by which it is a body. Therefore some other substantial form in the body precedes the soul. Objection 2. Further, man moves himself as every animal does. Now everything that moves itself is divided into two parts, of which one moves and the other is moved, as the philosopher proves, Physics 8.5. But the part which moves is the soul. Therefore, the other part must be such that it can be moved. But primary matter cannot be moved, Physics 5.1, since it is a being only potentially. Indeed, everything that is moved is a body. Therefore, in man and in every animal, there must be another substantial form by which the body is constituted. Objection 3. Further, the order of forms depends on the relation to primary matter, for before and after apply by comparison to some beginning. Therefore, if there were not in man some other substantial form besides the rational soul, and if this were to inhere immediately to primary matter, it would follow that it ranks among the most imperfect forms which inhere to matter immediately. Objection 4. Further, the human body is a mixed body. Now mingling does not result from matter alone, for then we should have mere corruption. Therefore the forms of the elements must remain in a mixed body, and these are substantial forms. Therefore in the human body there are other substantial forms besides the intellectual soul. On the contrary, of one thing there is but one substantial being, 
but the substantial form gives substantial being. Therefore, of one thing there is but one substantial form. But the soul is the substantial form of man. Therefore, it is impossible for there to be in man another substantial form besides the intellectual soul. I answer that, if we suppose that the intellectual soul is not united to the body as its form, but only as its motor, as the Platonists maintain, it would necessarily follow that in man there is another substantial form, by which the body is established in its being as movable by the soul. If, however, the intellectual soul be united to the body as its substantial form, as we have said above, Article 1, it is impossible for another substantial form besides the intellectual soul to be found in man. In order to make this evident, we must consider that the substantial form differs from the accidental form in this, that the accidental form does not make a thing to be simply, but to be such, as heat does not make a thing to be simply, but only to be hot. Therefore, by the coming of the accidental form, a thing is not said to be made or generated simply, but to be made such and such to be in some particular condition. And in like manner, when an accidental form is removed, a thing is said to be corrupted, not simply, but relatively. Now the substantial form gives being simply. Therefore, by its coming, a thing is said to be generated simply, and by its removal to be corrupted simply. For this reason, the old natural philosophers, who held that primary matter was some actual being, for instance, fire or air or something of that sort, maintained that nothing is generated simply or corrupted simply, and stated that every becoming is nothing but an alteration, as we read Physics 1.4. Therefore, if besides the intellectual soul there pre-existed in matter another substantial form by which the subject of the soul were made an actual being, it would follow that the soul does not give being simply, and consequently that it is not the substantial form. And so at the advent of the soul there would not be simple generation, nor at its removal simple corruption, all of which is clearly false. Whence we must conclude that there is no other substantial form in man besides the intellectual soul, and that the soul, as it virtually contains the sensitive and nutritive souls, so does it virtually contain all inferior forms, and itself alone does whatever the imperfect forms do in other things. The same is to be said of the sensitive soul in brute animals, and of the nutritive soul in plants, and universally of all more perfect forms with regard to the imperfect. Reply Objection 1 Aristotle does not say that the soul is the act of a body only, but the act of a physical organic body which has life potentially, and that this potentiality does not reject the soul. Whence it is clear that when the soul is called the act, the soul itself is included. As when we say that heat is the act of what is hot and light of what is lucid, not as though lucid and light were two separate things, but because a thing is made lucid by the light. 
In like manner, the soul is said to be the act of a body, etc., because by the soul it is a body, and is organic, and has life potentially. Yet the first act is said to be in potentiality to the second act, which is operation, for such a potentiality does not reject, that is, does not exclude, the soul. Reply Objection 2. The soul does not move the body by its essence, as the form of the body, but by the motive power, the act of which presupposes the body to be already actualized by the soul, so that the soul, by its motive power, is the part which moves, and the animate body is the part moved. Reply Objection 3. We observe in matter various degrees of perfection, as existence, living, sensing, and understanding. Now what is added is always more perfect. Therefore that form which gives matter only the first degree of perfection is the most imperfect, while that form which gives the first, second, and third degree, and so on, is the most perfect, and yet it inheres to matter immediately. Reply Objection 4 Avicenna held that the substantial forms of the elements remain entire in the mixed body, and that the mixed body is made by the contrary qualities of the elements being reduced to an average. But this is impossible, because the various forms of the elements must necessarily be in various parts of matter, for the distinction of which we must suppose dimensions, without which matter cannot be divisible. Now matter subject to dimension is not to be found except in a body. But various bodies cannot be in the same place. Whence it follows that elements in the mixed body would be distinct as to situation. And then there would be not a real mixture which is in respect of the whole, but only a mixture apparent to sense by the juxtaposition of particles. Averroes maintained that the form of the elements by reason of their imperfection, are a medium between accidental and substantial forms, and so can be more or less, and therefore in the mixture they are modified and reduced to an average, so that one form emerges from them. But this is even still more impossible, for the substantial being of each thing consists in something indivisible, and every addition and subtraction varies the species, as in numbers, as stated in Metaphysics 8, Didascale 7.3. And consequently it is impossible for any substantial form to receive more or less, nor is it less impossible for anything to be a medium between substance and accident. Therefore we must say, in accordance with the philosopher, Generation of Animals 1.10, that the forms of the elements remain in the mixed body, not actually, but virtually. For the proper qualities of the elements remain, though modified, and in them is the power of the elementary forms. This quality of the mixture is the proper disposition for the substantial form of the mixed body. For instance, the form of a stone, or of any sort of soul. Fifth article Question 76, Article 5. Whether the intellectual soul is properly united to such a body? Objection 1. 
It would seem that the intellectual soul is properly united to such a body, for matter must be proportionate to the form. But the intellectual soul is corruptible, therefore it is not properly united to a corruptible body. Objection 2. Further, the intellectual soul is a perfectly immaterial form, a proof whereof is its operation in which corporeal matter does not share. But the more subtle is the body, the less has it of matter. Therefore the soul should be united to a most subtle body, to fire, for instance, and not to a mixed body, still less to a terrestrial body. Objection 3. Further, since the form is the principle of the species, one form cannot produce a variety of species. But the intellectual soul is one form. Therefore it should not be united to a body which is composed of parts belonging to various species. Objection 4. Further, what is susceptible of a more perfect form should itself be more perfect but the intellectual soul is the most perfect of souls. Therefore, since the bodies of other animals are naturally provided with a covering, for instance, with hair instead of clothes, and hoofs instead of shoes, and are moreover naturally provided with arms, as claws, teeth, and horns, it seems that the intellectual soul should not have been united to a body which is imperfect as being deprived of the above means of protection. On the contrary, the philosopher says, on the soul to one, that the soul is the act of a physical organic body having life potentially. I answer that, since the form is not for the matter, but rather the matter for the form, we must gather from the form the reason why the matter is such as it is, and not conversely. Now the intellectual soul, as we have seen above, question 55, article 2, in the order of nature, holds the lowest place among intellectual substances, inasmuch as it is not naturally gifted with the knowledge of truth, as the angels are, but has to gather knowledge from individual things by way of the senses, as Dionysius says, divine name 7. But nature never fails in necessary things, Therefore, the intellectual soul had to be endowed not only with the power of understanding, but also with the power of feeling. Now, the action of the senses is not performed without a corporeal instrument. Therefore, it behooved the intellectual soul to be united to a body fitted to be a convenient organ of sense. Now, all the other senses are based on the sense of touch. But the organ of touch requires to be a medium between contraries, such as hot and cold, wet and dry, and the like, of which the sense of touch has the perception. Thus it is in potentiality with regard to contraries, and is able to perceive them. Therefore, the more the organ of touch is reduced to an equable complexion, the more sensitive will be the touch. But the intellectual soul has the power of sense in all its completeness, because what belongs to the inferior nature pre-exists more perfectly in the superior, as Dionysius says, Divine Names 5. Therefore the body to which the intellectual soul is united should be a mixed body, above others reduced to the most equable complexion. For this reason, among animals, man has the best sense of touch 
and among men, those who have the best sense of touch have the best intelligence. A sign of which is that we observe those who are refined in body are well endowed in mind, as stated on the soul 2.9. Reply Objection 1. Perhaps someone might attempt to answer this by saying that before sin, the human body was incorruptible. This answer does not seem sufficient, because before sin the human body was immortal not by nature, but by a gift of divine grace. Otherwise its immortality would not be forfeited through sin, as neither was the immortality of the devil. Therefore we answer otherwise by observing that in matter two conditions are to be found, one which is chosen in order that the matter may be suitable to the form, the other which follows by force of the first disposition. The artisan, for instance, for the form of the saw, chooses iron adapted for cutting through hard material, but that the teeth of the saw may become blunt and rusted follows by force of the matter itself. So the intellectual soul requires a body of equable complexion, which, however, is corruptible by force of its matter. If, however, it be said that God could avoid this, we answer that in the formation of natural things we do not consider what God might do, but what is suitable to the nature of things, as Augustine says, Gen Adlet 2.1. God, however, provided in this case by applying a remedy against death in the gift of grace. Reply Objection 2. A body is not necessary to the intellectual soul by reason of its intellectual operation considered as such, but on account of the sensitive power which requires an organ of equable temperament. Therefore the intellectual soul had to be united to such a body, and not to a simple element or to a mixed body, in which fire was in excess, because otherwise there could not be an equability of temperament. And this body of an equable temperament has a dignity of its own by reason of its being remote from contraries, thereby resembling, in a way, a heavenly body. Reply Objection 3. The parts of an animal, for instance, the eye, hand, flesh, and bones, and so forth, do not make the species. But the whole does, and therefore, properly speaking, we cannot say that these are of different species, but that they are of various dispositions. This is suitable to the intellectual soul, which, although it be one in its essence, yet on account of its perfection is manifold in power, and therefore for its various operations it requires various dispositions in the parts of the body to which it is united. For this reason we observe that there is a greater variety of parts in perfect than in imperfect animals, and in these a greater variety than in plants. Reply Objection 4 the intellectual soul, as comprehending universals, has a power extending to the infinite. Therefore it cannot be limited by nature to certain fixed natural notions, or even to certain fixed means, whether of defense or of clothing, as is the case with other animals, the souls of which are endowed with knowledge and power in regard to fixed particular things. Instead of all these, Man has by nature his reason and his hands, which are the organs of organs, on the soul three. 
since by their means man can make for himself instruments of an infinite variety and for any number of purposes. Sixth Article. Question 76. Article 6. Whether the intellectual soul is united to the body through the medium of accidental dispositions. Objection 1. It would seem that the intellectual soul is united to the body through the medium of accidental dispositions. For every form exists in its proper disposed matter. But dispositions to a form are accidents. Therefore, we must presuppose accidents to be in matter before the substantial form, and therefore before the soul, since the soul is a substantial form. Objection 2. Further, various forms of one species require various parts of matter. But various parts of matter are unintelligible without division in measurable quantities. Therefore, we must suppose dimensions in matter before the substantial forms, which are many belonging to one species. Objection 3. Further, what is spiritual is connected with what is corporeal by virtual contact. But the virtue of the soul is its power. Therefore, it seems that the soul is united to the body by means of a power, which is an accident. On the contrary, accident is posterior to substance, both in the order of time and in the order of reason. As the philosopher says, Metaphysics 7, Didascale 6, 1. Therefore, it is unintelligible that any accidental form exists in matter before the soul, which is the substantial form. I answer that, if the soul were united to the body merely as a motor, there would be nothing to prevent the existence of certain dispositions mediating between the soul and the body. On the contrary, they would be necessary, for on the part of the soul would be required the power to move the body, and on the part of the body, a certain aptitude to be moved by the soul. If, however, the intellectual soul is united to the body as substantial form, as we have already said above, Article 1, it is impossible for any accidental disposition to come between the body and the soul, or between any substantial form whatever in its matter. The reason is because, since matter is in potentiality to all manner of acts in a certain order, what is absolutely first among the acts must be understood as being first in matter. Now the first among all acts is existence. Therefore it is impossible for matter to be apprehended as hot, or as having quantity, before it is actual. But matter has actual existence by the substantial form, which makes it to exist absolutely, as we have said above, Article 4. Wherefore, it is impossible for any accidental dispositions to pre-exist in matter before the substantial form, and consequently before the soul. Reply Objection 1. As appears from what has been already said, Article 4, the more perfect form virtually contains whatever belongs to the inferior forms. Therefore, while remaining one and the same, it perfects matter according to the various degrees of perfection. For the same essential form makes man an actual being, a body, a living being, an animal, and a man. Now it is clear that to every genus follow its own proper accidents. Therefore, as matter is apprehended, as perfected in its existence, 
before it is understood as corporeal, and so on, so those accidents which belong to existence are understood to exist before corporeity. And thus dispositions are understood in matter before the form, not as regards all its effects, but as regards the subsequent effect. Reply Objection 2. Dimensions of quantity are accidents consequent to the corporeity which belongs to the whole matter. Wherefore matter, once understood as corporeal and measurable, can be understood as distinct in its various parts, and as receptive of different forms according to the further degrees of perfection. For although it is essentially the same form which gives matter of the various degrees of perfection, as we have said, Article 1, yet it is considered as different when brought under the observation of reason. Reply Objection 3. A spiritual substance which is united to a body as its motor only is united thereto by power or virtue, but the intellectual soul is united by its very being to the body as form, and yet it guides and moves the body by its power and virtue. Seventh Article Question 76, Article 7 Whether the soul is united to the animal body by means of a body? Objection 1 It seems that the soul is united to the animal body by means of a body. For Augustine says, Genesis ad lit 7, 19, that the soul administers the body by light, that is, by fire, and by air, which is most akin to the spirit. But fire and air are bodies, therefore the soul is united to the human body by means of a body. Objection 2. Further, a link between two things seems to be that thing the removal of which involves the cessation of their union. But when breathing ceases, the soul is separated from the body. Therefore the breath, which is a subtle body, is the means of union between soul and body. Objection 3. Further, things which are very distant from one another are not united except by something between them. But the intellectual soul is very distant from the body, both because it is incorporeal and because it is incorruptible. And therefore, it seems to be united to the body by means of an incorruptible body, and such would be some heavenly light which would harmonize the elements and unite them together. On the contrary, the philosopher says, on the soul too one, we need not ask if the soul and body are one, as neither do we ask if wax and its shape are one. But the shape is united to the wax without a body intervening. Therefore also the soul is thus united to the body. I answer that, if the soul, according to the Platonists, were united to the body merely as a motor, it would be right to say that some other bodies must intervene between the soul and body of man, or any animal whatever. For a motor naturally moves what is distant from it by means of something nearer. If, however, the soul is united to the body as its form, as we have said, Article 1, it is impossible for it to be united by means of another body. The reason of this is that a thing is one, according as it is a being. 
Now the form, through itself, makes a thing to be actual, since it is itself essentially an act. Nor does it give existence by means of something else. Wherefore, the unity of a thing composed of matter and form is by virtue of the form itself, which by reason of its very nature is united to matter as its act. Nor is there any other cause of union except the agent, which causes matter to be in act. As the philosopher says, Metaphysics 8, Didascale 7, 6. From this it is clear how false are the opinions of those who maintained the existence of some mediate bodies between the soul and the body of man. Of these, certain Platonists said that the intellectual soul has an incorruptible body naturally united to it, from which it is never separated, and by means of which it is united to the corruptible body of man. Others said that the soul is united to the body by means of a corporeal spirit. Others said it is united to the body by means of light, which, they say, is a body and of the nature of the fifth essence, so that the vegetative soul would be united to the body by means of the light and of sidereal heaven, the sensible soul by means of the light of the crystal heaven, and the intellectual soul by means of the light of the empyrean heaven. Now all this is fictitious and ridiculous, for light is not a body, and the fifth essence does not enter materially into the composition of a mixed body, since it is unchangeable, but only virtually. And lastly, because the soul is immediately united to the body as the form to matter. Reply Objection 1 Augustine speaks of the soul as it moves the body, whence he uses the word administration. It is true that it moves the grosser parts of the body by the more subtle parts, and the first instrument of the motive power is a kind of spirit, as the philosopher says in De Causa Mutus Animalium, De Mutus Animal 10. Reply Objection 2. The union of the soul and body ceases at the cessation of breath, not because this is the means of union, but because of the removal of that disposition by which the body is disposed for such a union. Nevertheless, the breath is a means of moving, as the first instrument of motion. Reply Objection 3. The soul is indeed very distant from the body if we consider the condition of each separately, so that if each had a separate existence, many means of connection would have to intervene. But inasmuch as the soul is the form of the body, it has not an existence apart from the existence of the body, but by its own existence is united to the body immediately. This is the case with every form which, if considered as an act, is very distant from matter, which is a being only in potentiality. Eighth article, question 76, article 8. Whether the soul is in each part of the body. Objection 1. It would seem that the whole soul is not in each part of the body. For the philosopher says in De Causa Mutus Animalium, De Mutus Animal 10, It is not necessary for the soul to be in each part of the body. It suffices that it be in some principle of the body, causing the other parts to live, for each part has a natural movement of its own. Objection 2. Further, the soul is in the body of which it is the act but it is the act of an organic body. 
Therefore, it exists only in an organic body. But each part of the human body is not an organic body. Therefore, the whole soul is not in each part. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says, on the soul 2, 1, that the relation of a part of the soul to a part of the body, such as the sight to the pupil of the eye, is the same as the relation of the soul to the whole body of an animal. If, therefore, the whole soul is in each part of the body, it follows that each part of the body is an animal. Objection 4. Further, all the powers of the soul are rooted in the essence of the soul. If, therefore, the whole soul be in each part of the body, it follows that all the powers of the soul are in each part of the body. Thus, the sight will be in the ear, and hearing in the eye, and this is absurd. Objection 5. Further, if the whole soul is in each part of the body, each part of the body is immediately dependent on the soul. Thus one part would not depend on another, nor would one part be nobler than another, which is clearly untrue. Therefore the soul is not in each part of the body. On the contrary, Augustine says, on the Trinity 6.6, 6, that in each body the whole soul is in the whole body, and in each part is entire. I answer that, as we have said, if the soul were united to the body merely as its motor, we might say that it is not in each part of the body, but only in one part through which it would move the others. But since the soul is united to the body as its form, it must necessarily be in the whole body, and in each part thereof. For it is not an accidental form, but the substantial form of the body. Now the substantial form perfects not only the whole, but each part of the whole. For since a whole consists of parts, a form of the whole which does not give existence to each of the parts of the body is a form consisting in composition and order. Such is the form of a house, and such a form is accidental. But the soul is a substantial form, and therefore it must be the form and the act, not only of the whole, but also of each part. Therefore, on the withdrawal of the soul, as we do not speak of an animal or a man unless equivocally, as we speak of a painted animal or a stone animal, so it is with the hand, the eye, the flesh, and bones, as the philosopher says on the soul to one. A proof of which is that on the withdrawal of the soul, no part of the body retains its proper action, although that which retains its species retains the action of the species. But act is in that which actuates. Wherefore the soul must be in the whole body and in each part thereof. That it is entire in each part thereof may be concluded from this, that since a whole is that which is divided into parts, there are three kinds of totality corresponding to three kinds of division. There is a whole which is divided into parts of quantity, as a whole line or a whole body. There is also a whole which is divided into logical and essential parts, as a thing defined is divided into the parts of a definition and a composite into matter and form. There is further a third kind of whole which is potential divided into virtual parts, 
The first kind of totality does not apply to forms, except perhaps accidentally, and then only to those forms which have an indifferent relationship to a quantitative whole and its parts. As whiteness, as far as its essence is concerned, is equally disposed to be in the whole surface and in each part of the surface, and therefore the surface being divided, the whiteness is accidentally divided. But a form which requires variety in its parts, such as a soul, and especially the soul of perfect animals, is not equally related to the whole and the parts. Hence it is not divided accidentally when the whole is divided. So therefore quantitative totality cannot be attributed to the soul, either essentially or accidentally. But the second kind of totality, which depends on logical and essential perfection, properly and essentially belongs to forms, and likewise the virtual totality, because a form is the principle of operation. Therefore, if it be asked whether the whole whiteness is in the whole surface and each part thereof, it is necessary to distinguish. If we mean quantitative totality, which whiteness has accidentally, then the whole whiteness is not in each part of the surface. The same is to be said of the totality of power. Since the whiteness which is in the whole surface moves the sight more than the whiteness which is in a small part thereof. But if we mean totality of species and essence, then the whole whiteness is in each part of the surface. Since, however, the soul has not quantitative totality, neither essentially nor accidentally as we have seen, it is enough to say that the whole soul is in each part of the body, by totality of perfection and of essence, but not by totality of power. For it is not in each part of the body with regard to each of its powers, but with regard to sight it is in the eye, and with regard to hearing it is in the ear, and so forth. We must observe, however, that since the soul requires a variety of parts, its relation to the whole is not the same as its relation to the parts. For to the whole it is compared primarily and essentially as to its proper and proportionate perfectible, but to the parts secondarily inasmuch as they are ordained to the whole. Reply Objection 1. The philosopher is speaking there of the motive power of the soul. Reply Objection 2. The soul is the act of an organic body, as of its primary and proportionate perfectible. Reply Objection 3. An animal is that which is composed of a soul and a whole body, which is the soul's primary and proportionate perfectible. Thus the soul is not a part, whence it does not follow that a part of an animal is an animal. Reply Objection 4. Some of the powers of the soul are in it according as exceeds the entire capacity of the body, namely the intellect and the will, whence these powers are not said to be in any part of the body. Other powers are common to the soul and body, wherefore each of these powers need not be wherever the soul is, but only in that part of the body which is adapted to the operation of such a power. Reply Objection 5 one part of the body is said to be nobler than another, on account of the various powers, of which the parts of the body are the organs. For that part which is the organ of a nobler power is a nobler part of the body, 
as also is that part which serves the same power in a nobler manner. End of question 76, part 2.